0: Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, hi, friends. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy to have you with us. If you're joining us online, welcome to you also. So um, I don't know if I should tell you this, but I'm going to tell you it anyway. Um, John Steinbeck is one of my favorite authors, and East of Eden is one of my favorite books. There, I said it. And I hesitate to tell you because I was at a men's uh, morning Bible study one time and we were talking about what our favorite books were. And I mentioned that East of Eden was one of my favorite books and a buddy of mine picked it up and read it and then came back and he said, Paulson, this book is not rated PG. Why did you recommend it to me? And I was like, whoa, 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 I didn't recommend it to you. I just told you it was one of my favorite books. That's a big difference, man. And if you've ever read *East of Eden*, you know that it's a book that wrestles with themes of sin and brokenness and the human condition. It, it follows two families over multiple generations, and as the title suggests, it whoops. The title suggests it draws on biblical themes and sort of follows the story arc of Cain and Abel in a unique way. Now, here's the deal. This is a spoiler alert, but you've had a few decades to read the book, so I don't feel bad. The book does not end happily ever after. It's one of those books that leaves you a little bit wanting. Like you want to flip over and go, "Well, what's the what's the end of the story? Like how What do they decide to do? How do they decide to live? Where where do they decide to go from here? And Steinbeck paints such a great picture of the human condition and the struggles that we have and the ability that we have for both light and dark, good and evil. And the end of it, it just leaves you in the pain. And you go, well, like Steinbeck, what are we supposed to do with that? So my buddy gathers six other guides guys, talks him into reading the book. And we had a book club discussion about East of Eden. Okay. And we're sitting around this evening, just had a sacred conversation. It was just um, wrestling with the themes in this book. And one of my friends says, you know, I'm not sure Steinbeck knew Jesus. Like he, he, he writes East of Eden and he messes with and it sort of like uses biblical themes, but I'm just not sure he knows Jesus. Like he just didn't get to... Redemption, and I would suggest to you that maybe Steinbeck asks better questions than he gives answers, but I think sometimes we might have the opposite problem. See, Steinbeck invites us to sit in the pain without resolution. A lot of authors do this. A lot of people do this, right? They just get get sort of stuck in the pain. They can, like Steinbeck beautifully names our human pain but he doesn't have any answers for it. See, Steinbeck invites us to sit in the pain without resolution, but many Christians bypass the pain and move straight toward redemption. It's what we might call spiritual bypassing. It's a phrase that was developed by a psychologist in the 1980s, and his name was John Wellwood, and he describes the phenomenon of spiritual bypassing like this. He says, it's the tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. So here's what he's saying. Let me just put it in layman's terms. He's saying that sometimes we use Christianity or spirituality as a way to sort of sweep our pain aside rather than to actually deal with it. And so if Steinbeck gets caught in the pain, too many Christians just simply gloss over it. Like we will sing about the cross, but we want to immediately move to the empty tomb, right? Like, yeah, sure, there's a cross. Yes, but, but we know the end of the story. And don't get me wrong. Like redemption is a distinct part of our story. We are a redeemed people, but it can only be realized if we come to terms with the fact that we need to be redeemed. Not only needed to be redeemed, but still need to be redeemed, still need God's grace active and working in our life. And certainly we need redemption that saves us so that one day we will stand before the throne of God, pure and holy and blameless only by the blood of Jesus. Yes, we need that redemption. But how many of you need your pain redeemed today? Things going on in your life today where you need to see God work. See, maybe we don't need redemption only once. Maybe it's a pattern that repeats itself over and over. Maybe the world will always be broken before Jesus returns to make all things new. And maybe we will always need to hold on to joy like our lives depend on it. I I think there's a bit of resonance with this text in our community right now. I mean, there's just a lot of pain that people are walking through If you read through our prayer requests, you can see it. It's just sort of on the surface. In fact, if there was a reset button for 2024, I would hit it. Is anybody with me, right? Can we unplug 2024, plug it back in, and see if it starts working a little bit better? I mean, life is heavy, you guys. And I, for one, am not interested in a spirituality that's akin to playing violin on the sinking Titanic, I'm not interested in trying to escape reality, but I am deeply interested in learning how to hold on to genuine joy in the midst of pain. And that's exactly where Jesus points us in John chapter 16. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. That's the journey he wants to take us on today. John chapter 16, as you're turning there, let me remind you of two things. Number one, we are jumping into the tail end of a conversation that's taken uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 of John's gospel. That's a long conversation Jesus is having with his disciples, and he wants to prepare them to flourish in their faith after he leaves. So last week we read about the fact that Jesus made this audacious statement, it's better for you if I go. Like, like. The Holy Spirit's indwelling is better than Jesus's physical presence. That's hard to believe, but he says it's true. And then he tells us that the spirit is going to expose our air and illuminate truth. How many of you were convicted of your righteousness this last week? Two of you? Come on, man. Come on. <laughs> Start to throw this. like, Come on. Come on, you guys. Well... Let's hope today goes a little bit better than that, all right? So Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for his departure and to flourish in their faith and listen to what he says next, starting in verse 16. Are you there? Right on, here we go. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. (laughs) You will see me, then you won't see me, then you'll see me again. Pretty much summarizes it, right? And some of his disciples said to one another, what are you talking about? Okay, that's my paraphrase of it, but that's essentially what they said. What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do, let's just say this together. We do not know what he is talking about. I love that John gives us these little sort of narrative interludes throughout John's gospel where he will say things like, we had no clue what Jesus was saying until the resurrection. Like it was just like and I love that that gets normalized in the scriptures because so often I have no clue what God's doing in my life. So often I'm like, Lord, where are you? Like, where, where are you in the midst of this? What do you wanna say to me? Is there something I'm missing, Lord? Like, I, I feel like I learned this lesson already. I don't think I need the advanced course. Like, like God, what, what what are you doing? And in a funny way, it just gives me this sense that what I go through and what the disciples go through is normal. So you can be honest about it. Like, you don't have to pretend like you get it. They didn't get it, and Jesus was standing right in front of them. But he doesn't want to leave them there. Like, he wants to speak a word of hope over their life and over ours, so listen to what he says. It says, and Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Like, is that, did I confuse you? Sorry about that. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn Into joy. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into. And notice that Jesus does not give the disciples a whole lot of details at this point. He doesn't unpack how their sorrow will turn into joy. He just simply lays it out there. And I think it's a paradigm and a pattern for the way that God works, not only in the cross and resurrection and in the lives of the disciples, but also in our lives. Sorrow turned into joy. It's more than a statement about what happened to Jesus and then his disciples, and it's a paradigm and a pattern for how joy works in a broken world. See, see sorrow is often the soil that bears the fruit of joy. Sorrow is often the very place that we Once God works in our lives and and as he sort of tills that soil, it's the very place that we start to experience expulsive joy as we walk with him. Listen to the way that the psalmist put it. He said, those who sow in tears, get the picture? Like the tears are the seeds down in the soil. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of what? Of joy. Like seeds that go down into the ground, tears become the substance that gives birth to joy. So maybe, maybe, we can't fast forward through the questions that John Steinbeck and others wrestle with. Like maybe those are the very questions and those are the very conflicts and those are the very doubts that joy starts to be born into. And see, Jesus drives this point home with an illustration that was used in the Old Testament also, verse 21. He says this, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, just a quick timeout. This is a bold move by Jesus. (laughs) It's a bold move by any man to use childbirth as an illustration to make a point, but he is the son of God and he alone can get away with it. What's this, I think he uses this illustration because it's just this like beautiful picture of what he's talking about. Now, um, we have a writing team where we get together and we talk about the devotions that we wanna read or write that go along with each message that we give here. And there's a number of women in that writing team and they're like, hey Paulson, I just want you to know I haven't forgotten the pain of childbirth. Does anybody want to just say amen today? All the ladies in the house, right? (laughs) But what she said was, but, but that pain pales in comparison to the joy of holding new life. That's what she said and i think that's the point that jesus is making is that pain is a necessary part of new life coming into the world see 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 here's the deal you guys it's not it's not just that suffering lends itself to be once sort of eventually turned into joy it's the very place that joy sprouts from see jesus promises to transform our overwhelming sorrow and make it into overflowing joy. How many of you need that word today? Our overwhelming sorrow that he turns into overflowing joy. And we tend to see sorrow and joy as being diametrically opposed, like on one side of the pendulum. But Jesus is teaching us that they're more connected than we might think. So it's not just that God will redeem sorrow, it's that he will use it to bring about greater joy. Uh, Listen to the way that the scholar William Temple put it. He said this, it is not only that joy will take the place of sorrow, but the sorrow itself becomes the joy. The cross is not for Christians a stumbling block which the resurrection has removed. It is not a defeat of which the effect has been canceled by the subsequent victory. It is itself the triumph." What was the devil's worst has become God's best. What a great word. What was the devil's worst has become God's best. And what if he wants to do that in your life today? what if he wants to to work that, to grow that in your life right now? But here's the problem we can't skip through the pain. We can't bypass the pain. If joy is going to be born out of the pain, we have got to be honest enough to name it. If we can't get honest, we will never experience hope. If we can't name the pain that we're walking through, we will never taste the joy that God longs to bring. I love the way that the uh, missionary Amy Carmichael put it when she said, God never wastes his children's pain. He will always use it to deepen us, to love us, and to show us more of who he is, that we might be drawn into communion with him and see his mighty hand at work. But we must be honest about our hurt if we are ever going to fully embrace joy. You guys, it's always darkest before the dawn. I love the resurrection. I love the resurrection. I don't love that it's preceded by death. And so, Jesus wants to give us a word today. And there's some anchors that he wants to give his followers and you and me to hold on to in the midst of a world that just sometimes feels like it's unraveling and falling apart, like anchors for our joy in the midst of a world that feels like it's unraveling. Let me show you three of them that he draws out for his disciples. Continuing in verse 22, here's what he said. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The world didn't give it and the world can't take it away, right? In that day you will, do you guys not know that phrase? I like one person. Let's just try that again. The world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. Wow. All right. That was still weak, but I'm going to go with it. Better than our review of last Sunday. So, you know, listen to Jesus. He continues, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of my father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. And then let's say this together. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. And I love, I love this anchor that Jesus gives his disciples in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of pain. He says, listen, listen, listen. There will be a joy that you experience through answered prayer." I don't know about you, but when I'm hurting, it can be so hard to see the way that God is working. See, Jesus is calling us to raise our eyes just a little bit above the hurt so that we can see his hand. Because I'm convinced that even in the valley of the shadow of death, your good God is at work. He has not let you go. If you're keeping track, this is the fifth time that Jesus has said in the last two chapters, ask whatever in my name. Ask whatever. I mean, whatever seems pretty big, doesn't it? Like I did a word study of whatever, and it turns out it means whatever, right? And then he says, "And in my name. So he starts to to narrow it down a little bit because there's a lot of whatever that I couldn't ask for in his name. Can I get an amen? Right? So he starts to narrow it down a little bit. And I think John further clarifies in one of his epistles what, what Jesus means when he says, ask whatever. John would write later and he would say, this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his, what? Will he Here's us. So if we ask anything according to his will, that's, that's what it means to ask in his name. Now, whatever doesn't mean that you can just ask for whatever and you'll get it. Let me sh- give you an example from this text. Later on in this text, it's gonna say that um, we will experience tribulation. We will. Now, can you pray and ask God? to prevent you from walking through trials, pain, and tribulation and expect that he will answer you, sure. Can you? No. No. Why? Because he's already said that you're going to walk through that. So whatever wouldn't be so big that it would include um, escaping something that Jesus says is going to come your way. But we could pray and we could say, Jesus, we wanna be obedient to you. And as we walk in the power of your spirit, we pray that you would manifest yourself to us, show us your love, give us your joy and shower us with your peace. And to that, he will say yes, every single time. It's interesting, R.A. Torrey wrote a great little book entitled How to Pray and uh, he has a page or two where he talks about this verse and he says, we just flip this verse around from what it actually means. He said, you know, this verse is intended to give us confidence when we pray, but we use it as a little like addendum to put on the end of our week in faith prayers. We're like, hey God, you know, if you, if you could do this for me, that would be really great. If it be your will. And we think we've applied this verse. No, it's just the opposite actually. That as we seek out his will, his good, pleasing and perfect will, then we can ask our good father. And if we know that we're in alignment with him, we can have what? Confidence when we pray. Like that's what John wants you to have. He wants you to have confidence when you go before your God. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It is an anchor in the midst of the storm. Jesus goes on and he says this. He says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour's coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And I'm sure his disciples are like, oh, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Tell you plainly. But I mean, really the the teachings of Jesus aren't, aren't all that confusing. The children get it. Like they understand. They're just confusing to people who are committed to the world working the way that we see the world working, right? Where gods come and they rule over and they overpower and heads roll. Like to see a God who's self-sacrificial and loving, that is otherworldly. And see, what Jesus is saying is that the only confusing thing is that his wisdom is counterintuitive to the way that the world often works. This phrase, that the hour has now come, or is coming, every time. It's used seven times in the Gospel of John, and each time it points to the cross and resurrection. And I think what Jesus is saying is, the thing that I can tell you most plainly and show you the Father most plainly is through the cross and the resurrection. You're gonna get a picture of what God is like, all of the pieces are going to come together because the clearest thing that Jesus could say about God is with his arms stretched out wide, carrying the sin of humanity, burying it in the ground, and raising with new life in his hands. The cross is The glory of God and sacrificial love is the revelation of what God is like. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to make it so plain that you couldn't miss it. And he says, in that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that to you that I will ask the father on your behalf. Like like, you're not going through me to the father for the father himself loves you. In fact, uh, let's just all say that together. Emmanuel Faith, it's too good for me to say alone. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Jesus is saying he's not going to have to intercede for us or mediate for us because the Father loves us just like he loves Jesus. See, God is not a cold father who needs the prodding of his warmer son in order to approach us with love and understanding? Some of you think that about the father. Some of you think that Jesus is saving you from his father. Friends, this is not the gospel. And Jesus wants to stave that lie off at the pass right here. I love the way that Martin Luther put it when he said, we are to believe and know that the Father is just as graciously disposed toward us as Christ, who mercifully and willfully dies for us because this is the Father's will and command. Jesus is not rescuing us from his Father. He is reconciling us to our loving Father. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The father himself loves you. Now, please don't hear me saying that God sort of winks at sin or that sin isn't a big deal, that God's just a big teddy bear. No, he loves you so much that he's willing to give himself to die, to reverse the curse that you might be welcomed home and adopted as sons and daughters of the most high God, he hates sin so much that he gave his own life to reconcile you and bring you home. And this is one of the anchors for us in the midst of the storm, friend. It is the love through the Father's embrace. The Father himself loves us. And I think Jesus just doesn't want us to doubt. Like when we walk through challenging circumstances, like one of my first questions is, God, like, where are you in this? God, have you, have you deserted me? Have you left me? Like, where are you? And the Apostle Paul will write to the church at Rome and say, in talking about our struggles that eventually lead to hope, he says, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Did you know that one of the roles of the Spirit in your life is to affirm the love of the Father even in the midst of pain and suffering and trials? Will you listen to that voice today? He goes on to write, And he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, so he's poured his love into our hearts so that we can run to, not from, our heavenly father so we can be confident that he welcomes us home regardless of how bad we fail, regardless of how much we, we just make an absolute mess of our life, he's going, I'm here for you, I love you, I'm gonna pour my spirit into your heart that's gonna affirm my love so that you can run back to me and know that I am your good father, your dad in heaven. And I wonder if that's just a word for anybody here tonight, today. That sorrow is no reason to doubt God's love, you guys. It is reason to cling to it even more tightly. Jesus continued, listen to what he said. He said, I came from the father and I have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the father. And his disciples said, ah, oh, finally, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. And I wanna be like, really? Like this is, this is clearly, like he's, he's said very similar things before. And they're like, now we got it. Thanks, Jesus. And Jesus is like, not sure that you do, but verse 30, now we know that you know all things and you don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Like you can almost hear this answer being given in a Sunday school classroom, can't you? Like they're just repeating back. Now we know that you came from the father and that you're going back to the father, right? And I think they're doing what we often do. We're like, oh, sorrow to joy. Wonderful. We get it. Now, if we could just move through the sorrow and get on with the joy, that would be wonderful. And Jesus is gonna say, actually, I don't know if you get it. I don't don't know if you get how hard it's gonna be. I, I don't know if you understand how painful it's gonna get. We can't bypass the pain. We can't gloss over it. We can't put a Christian cliche on it. Like everything happens for a reason. Yeah, sometimes the reason is the devil is real. Our flesh wars against us and we lose sight of a good heavenly father who loves us. So yeah, everything happens for a reason, but sometimes the reason is the devil's real. So there's that. We can't bypass the pain. Verse 31, listen to what Jesus says. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Like, that's all it took? I've been saying this for like four chapters. Behold, he goes, you don't get it. Behold, the hour is coming and indeed it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the father is with me. Here's what Jesus says. It's gonna get worse before it gets better. It's darkest before the dawn. The whole world is gonna be on one side of the battle and me and my father are going to be on the other one and you're gonna run scared. That's what's gonna happen, guys. That's the way this story is going to go. And I think Jesus is saying, As I, I, I know you think you get it, but it's gonna be worse than you can take, worse than you could imagine. But he doesn't leave them there. Verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that, what? In me, Jesus says, you may have peace. So why, why is Jesus telling his disciples any of this? What, what does he want them to take away from this conversation? He wants them to have what? Peace. Peace. He wants them to have the loose frayed ends of their soul woven back together and notice it's not just any peace and it's not peace because everything starts going great again and is automatically perfect. That's not the story that we find ourselves in, you guys. The peace that Jesus's followers have is peace in him, in him. And our peace isn't just because of Jesus. Our peace is actually in Jesus, this is one of the anchors for our soul, you guys, that we have peace through union with Jesus. He knows our fallibility. He knows our frailty. He knows how fragile we are. Look up at me for just a second. He gets us. He gets us. But here's what I mean by that. He gets us and knows that we will be hollow if we chase our own peace. That we will be chasing a shadow and trying to reach our hand into a bucket of water and grab a handful, if we try to earn peace on our own, if we try to achieve peace by the things that we can create and the things that we do, if we try to gain peace because we get a little bit better and a little bit better and finally arrive, Jesus goes, no, 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 that that will never, ever, ever bring peace. He gets us. He knows that peace has to be a gift given from the outside, not something that we earn from the inside. Peace comes only. Only when we are in Christ and where his sacrifice is given to us, his righteousness is given to us, that we don't earn it, we simply receive it because we are loved children of a most high God. And so Paul will say, amen, Paul will say, listen, I know there's a ton of things going on in your mind and you're, you're anxious and he calls us to be people who pray. And he promises the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. We'll guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we can have peace amidst our failures. If we can let go and admit that only Jesus is the hero of the greatest story ever told. As the great hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Author Robert Louis Stevenson tells a story about his son who was on a ship, and the ship got hit by just this massive storm out in the middle of the ocean and Stevenson's son and his buddies were on this ship and they thought they were gonna die. So his buddies sort of elbowed Stevenson's son and said, go, go ask the captain, like, what's going on? We're we gonna make it through this? We're we gonna survive, are we gonna make it to shore? And so uh, Stevenson's son goes up to the, to the captain and he sort of pokes his head into the captain's chambers. And then he goes back to his friends and his friends are like, what did he say? Storm almost over? We're going to survive? And he goes, he didn't say anything. They're like, what do you mean he didn't say anything? Didn't say anything. He said, I just saw the captain's face and I knew we were going to be just. In 1633, Rembrandt painted his now famous picture entitled, Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's one of these iconic paintings because it has Jesus and all of his disciples in this boat and the wind and the waves are raging. Everybody's freaking out, everybody except Jesus. If you look at his face, Rembrandt paints him intentionally calm as if to say, the wind and the waves still know his name. And some of you are here today to receive the kind of peace that comes just from seeing his face and knowing every wrong will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. Everything sad will be untrue. Behold, behold, he is making all things new. Jesus ends by saying in this world, you will have tribulation. It's not, a, it's not an if, it's a when, it's a promise. But he says, take heart, have courage. I have overcome the world. I you guys I love this verse. I love this verse because I think it's the greatest summary of the story that we live in. That there is pain and suffering and sorrow and grief That's an inevitable part of living in a fallen world. We have enemies of our flesh, the world, the devil, that just war against us and threaten to undo us. But Jesus says, you can take heart. You can sink your anchor into joy because your joy is secure, friend. The victory is won. And I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful that sorrow is never the end of the story. See, that's what Steinbeck and others get wrong. They get stuck in the birth pains and don't realize that glorious life is being born. Don't get stuck. Don't gloss over it, don't tap out keep walking with the one who says, take heart, I have overcome the world. So see the way that he's answering your prayer. Know the love of his embrace. And then would you look into his eyes and experience peace that comes only through him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. I really wish this passage of scripture wasn't as applicable as it feels in our community right now. But I'm grateful that it's true we can have these anchors of joy in the midst of the storm and the sorrow and the struggle that we know that sorrow is never the end of the story. So we're going to hold on to you. We're going to ask confident that we'll see your hand move. We're going to remember the Father loves us and we're going to remind each other of that, Lord. And then we want to look into your eyes to see peace that only you and we're so grateful you bring it so faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org.